Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm David Knowles and this is Ukraine, the latest Today, we'll look at Russia's Black Sea blockade Explore what victory means for the West and also an interview with me, Svetoslav Rinchuk. I am a news anchor for United News in Ukraine. I speak to Ukraine, the latest about my daily life and work in my country at war, and share how Ukraine's journalists are working together to report on the invasion of our country. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's the 28th of April, day 64. And today I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor Venetia Rainey, and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front lines. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So in the last 24 hours, we've seen rocket strikes in Hearst on the city, in the south, first city taken by Russia. Those rocket strikes destroyed a TV mast. They've been um, ascribed to uh, Ukraine. Um, Interesting, this comes a couple of days after um, antenna were destroyed in Moldova, in the Transnistria area of Moldova suspected to also be Ukraine. Um, We should never forget, of course, but speaking here on the podcast, the power of the information flank, if you like, to to war. So it looks like there may be some concerted effort there from from Ukraine to, um, if not dominate, then certainly stymie Russia's ability to use the the information uh, information area. Um, Also, there have been air defence systems active in Belgorod. So Belgorod, about 100 k's north of the border, so inside Russia, Russian Russian city, um, has been hit a number of times over the last few weeks. Uh, Fuel depot, ammunition depot, uh, railway lines also in the the vicinity. Um, We've been surprised that suspected Ukrainian air assault or air air attack from from MI24 hind helicopters have been able to get through to Belgorod and and conduct these strikes. Um, There were reports of uh, UAVs, Ukrainian uh, uninhabited air vehicles also shot down, drones shot down in the region last week. So it seems like the and we were we were asking where where is the Russian air defence system? It seems crazy that that these these high value targets, these logistic hubs, were able to be targeted. It seems now as if either the the Russian air defence system has has um, has woken up. Um, they may be getting a bit twitchy, which is you know that's fine. That's what that's what they do. It's what they're there for. Um, but yes, yeah, so so no no reported strikes in the area, but air defence systems uh, active around Bel- Belgorod um, to the north. Uh, and I'll just I'll just take a pause there. Uh, Venetia, uh, what would you like to add to that? Well, we haven't seen much more on the ground movement, but we did have another video overnight from a fighter trapped in the Mariupol steel plant, Azovstal. Um, yet another plea for a humanitarian corridor to be set up. And he was speaking about the 
sort of makeshift hospital that's been set up inside the steel plant where up to a thousand people are supposed to be sheltering. Um, obviously, Russia has been bombarding the city for many weeks now. They've been trying to blockade the steel plant. They've tried to storm it. They haven't been able to get in yet. Um, no one has felt safe enough to surrender to the Russians for obvious reasons. Um, so there are soldiers trapped inside and they've created a sort of makeshift hospital with a lot of people who are injured and there's no medicine. They're running out of food and water. There are also women, children, families in there. So yes, another insight into the into the situation there. We also heard from the owner of the steel plant who said that he's been speaking to workers who've been sheltering there and that it was turning into humanitarian catastrophe. But we haven't seen any further developments really in terms of whether Mariupol has been taken by the Russians or what's going to happen with the eternally proposed humanitarian corridors as of yet. Thanks, Venetia. And we've also seen that Russian forces have been using tear gas and stun grenades to disperse a pro-Ukraine rally in the occupied city of Kherson. Uh, Francis Durney, would you talk a little bit about this? What's happening in Kherson? Thanks, David. Yes, well, we've said on this podcast for several weeks now that, 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 that Kherson or Kherson, um, depending on how one pronounces it, is a good barometer of what the Russian strategy has been um, or is in, ter- in occupational terms for um, their, the territories that they've taken since the war began. And um, I remember that we were uncertain exactly what the reaction would be from those on, on the, the, the Ukrainian people there. And and really, it has, from, from the get-go, been one of um, very firm resistance to the occupation and there have been several instances not least the latest today where there have been rallies and protests in in the city uh, where the Russians have been forced to deploy tear gas and stun grenades um, but it goes further than that because um, we now know, and this is the latest coming in this morning, that the puppet government that's been installed there um, is now saying that it is willing to switch to the, the region's payments to the ruble from May. And the reason this is significant, of course, is it gives a very strong indication um, that to the date that Moscow is planning to occupy parts of Ukraine long term. Um, and it, so it's a clear statement of intent. And not only that, uh, it's the, the, the language that is coming out from the um, deputy head of the, of the civilian military administration, that's the technical term, um, it, it is just straight from the Russian playbook. So lots of terms that I'm quoting here, um, reintegrating the region back into a Nazi Ukraine is out of the question. Um, he says it's impossible uh, about uh, and he denies reports suggesting that Russia is going to stage a vote there in an attempt to, to um, establish a separatist outlet. But I think it's it's very clear that the city is essentially um, a statement of intent from the regime that in response to what the West has been doing in in, in recent weeks of, of and and obviously most recently um, last night at the Mansion House speech given by the Foreign Secretary, which we'll come to um, shortly. Um, this is a, a, a clear response to this idea that the West is uh, uh, unwilling to allow to, uh, Putin to perceive to have, re- have received any gains from his military um, uh, invasion of, of, the, of the country. And as a consequence um, of, of that, that, uh, that Curzon would not be one of the cities that would be permitted to, to, be, uh, to be held. And so this is clearly, as I say, um, a... a, a a conscious decision by the Russian regime of saying we're not going anywhere. Um, but of course, that is um, not something that necessarily the Russian army is going to have a, um, a say in long term. But I'll pause there. Dom, I know you had some thoughts about anti-ship missiles in the UK from the UK. Would you like to jump in on this? Yeah, I just want to, it's worth an update here because this has been rumbling on for the last few days. There's been a number of comments recently about anti-ship missiles and whether, whether Britain and others can, can help supply these to Ukraine. So the, 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 the clear threat here is, is uh, well, what le- what's left of the Black Sea Fleet after the sinking of the flagship Moskva. The Black Sea Fleet at the moment is doing a number, number of things. It, it is effectively um, forming a blockade so that the, the economic uh, uh, might of Ukraine is being strangled. So trying to get that um, the trade, maritime trade, out, out of Ukraine, uh, down to ports elsewhere around the Black Sea and the wider world, is stymied. Um, it's also threatening Odessa and the south coast. It's, uh, there's, there's a threat of an amphibious assault there, as it has been for a number of weeks. So in recent days, we had uh, James Heapy, the Minister 
for the armed forces. So in, in the UK, uh, in the UK infrastructure, that's the sort of deputy defence secretary, if you like. He was saying that we'd be looking to supply uh, brimstone um, missiles, which could be used in an anti-ship role. Um, and that was added to this morning. So the defence secretary, Ben Wallace, with Sky News, he was saying that, that yes, we're Britain. He didn't mention brimstone by name, but he said Britain would be looking to to supply or help um, the facilitation of, of anti-ship missiles in some in some capacity. Um, I mean, brimstone has been in service since 2005 with the Royal Air Force. It um, in British military use it as air-to-ground munition. It was updated in 2008, so it's got it's basically got two ways of of targeting things. It can either it's got its own radar, millimetric wave radar, so it it can look for stuff itself. You can tell it to go and look for a tank. Uh, I want you to ignore all the artillery vehicles, all the weird wheeled vehicles, any civilian vehicles. I want you just to go and look for tanks, and it, and it can do that. Secondly, it can it can home in on on a laser beam. So uh, uh, someone from from the ground, a soldier, or um, someone from a vehicle, or maybe from the air as well, or from a ship, could fire a laser beam at a target, and the returned laser energy uh, will be used to home the the, the the dual mode brimstone in on that target. So there's two two ways of doing it. That's in service with the with the British Royal Air Force. There is also a sea a maritime version called Sea Spear. Trials have been done in the last few years. Um, essentially the same weapon, it's just how the how the the targeting pod works, how the seeker head works, because radar energy and laser energy can be um, can be scattered. It can be affected by basically by the by light bouncing off the off the sea and the and the way that that, that can affect the um, the seeker head. So essentially the same weapon, just some some other clever gizmos up front, and that is a technical term. Um, that can uh, allow it to be turned into a maritime weapon as well. So we, we don't know, uh, they're not currently in service. The maritime version of Brimstone is not currently in service with the British military. Um, so we're not, not sure um, if this is the weapon, as James Heapy suggests, if this is the weapon to to be sent, um, whether it be um, utilised from the from the land role, um, because obviously if it, if it hits a ship, it still hits a, hits a ship. Um, or whether or not it'll be facilitating the UK will be facilitating this the maritime version, but but this this effort to get to get anti ship munitions um, is is increasing, and we've seen the the devastating effect they can have with those two Neptune missiles that, that hit the Moskva and sank sank the Moskva. So so anti ship missiles are back in um, uh, back in the headlines today as well. Just to jump in on that, sort of linking up those thoughts about Kherson and the anti ship missiles and the Black Sea Fleet. What the sort of question that we're asking, what does the West think victory looks like? Well, it will be about pushing Russia back from the gains that it's made, particularly in the South, where those gains are the clearest at the moment. Obviously, we've seen them withdraw from around Kiev. The Donbass is very much still where live fighting is going on and it's, um, you know, a sort of fluid front line. Um, But they have managed to take quite large swathes of the South and have said fairly explicitly that they'd like to keep that and that they'd even like to expand it to potentially join up with Moldova, which is why Transnistria has been in the news so much recently, that separatist region in the neighbouring country. Um, but part of pushing back that those gains will involve, A, breaking the naval blockade of Ukraine's southern coastal border. Um, and that's partly really important so that Ukraine can use its coastal border again, and partly because of the grain exports. Um, most of Ukraine's grains exports are done by ship, not by land borders, but by ship um, out of its Black Sea ports. Um, and for that to be restarted, the Russian naval blockade will have to be cleared somehow. And that's where the sort of anti-ship missiles come in. Although um, Dom and I were talking earlier today about how Russia can just move its ships f- slightly further out into the Black Sea. So it would still be an issue. Um, and Kherson, of course, occupied one of the first cities to fall to Russia in the south. Um, it's not clear how Russia would be able to be pushed out of this city, the, this city, or others like it. You know, it, there have lot, been lots of talks about it, about Russia wanting to hold a sham referendum there. We heard about it trying to bring in bring in the ruble. May 9th is the upcoming victory day for Russia, and what we're increasingly expecting is several quite large sort of demonstrations of Russia claiming these parts of the South as its own. And it will be really up for contest as to where and how much Russia is able to be pushed out of these southern areas in terms of finding some kind of ending to this war. It will be a very tricky task to do militarily or to negotiate diplomatically. 
Thanks, Venetia. Can I just ask quickly, just on this naval blockade, as you mentioned, uh, these, these are this is affecting Ukrainian exports, um, primarily of grain and other foodstuffs. Who, who are they exporting to? Who, who else stands to lose from this? So the exports are done to lots of countries, but mainly to sort of Middle East and North Africa. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's wheat. It's also sunflower seeds. We've obviously seen sunflower oil um, affected here in the UK, and there've been, there's been some rationing of that because sunflower is one of the sort of core materials for that oil. Um, and those, all those exports have to be piled onto massive ships, which are then sort of taken to distribution hubs. There have been some exports done by land um, over rail, on, on railway tracks, um, but they're small amounts and it's quite bulky to sort of move around. Um, and part of the problem is the naval blockade, but the other part of the problem is that the sea has been mined. Um, so it makes it very difficult for these ships to move around. And, and we've, heard about, um, we've heard about international ships getting stuck in Odessa with international crews not knowing you know, where they can go or how they they can get out of the country. Um, so it's an, it's an ongoing problem that both people who are waiting for these grain exports in Middle Eastern and African countries are facing and also Ukrainian farmers who some of them are struggling to plant harvest this year, but some of them also have surpluses, sort of stores of grains that can't go anywhere and will rot and be spoiled if they can't be exported soon. Dom, I know you want to come in on this, don't you? Well, I think it's just just worth setting the context, really, just so so everyone knows the kind of numbers that we're talking about. So a UK defence intelligence assessment this morning said that there are 20 Russian naval vessels in the, in the Black Sea, including submarines. The Bosphorus Strait has been closed by Turkey. There's um, a piece of law called the Montreux Convention. I think it's convention, maybe declaration, but but it's it basically controls access to the Black Sea in, the, in time of hostilities, and it's administered by Turkey. So... Um, uh, Russia is not able to increase its naval force in the area and no other, no other navies, less the Turkish Navy, are allowed to enter and exit um, the Black Sea. But 20, 20 Russian vessels, according to UK Defence Intelligence, and, and that assessment said after the, and this is a quote, embarrassing losses, unquote, of the landing ship Saratov in uh, Berdyansk weeks ago and the Moskva, um, the Defence Intelligence assessment is that the Black Sea fleet still retains... Um, clear capability to strike Ukrainian targets along the coast and inside the the country. So still a very potent force. Thanks. Uh, Thanks very much, Dom. There's a couple more uh, stories I think we should talk about. Um, Firstly, I mean, this is an absolutely awful story um, that we've published today, I think. Tens of thousands of packets of emergency contraception are being sent to Ukraine. Um, Venetia and Francis, can we talk about why this is? Sure. So we've heard lots of stories of um, rape. And when they first started coming out at the beginning of the war, we didn't we just couldn't quite believe them. It's such a medieval tactic. You obviously do see it in conflicts across the world. Um, but it was just hard to believe that really this was happening um, in, you know, a sort of modern national army. Um, but it has been happening and we've seen lots of confirmed reports of it now. Um, I know the UN has verified over 100 reports. Um, and now we've heard from a charity that works on emergency contraception that it's sending about 25,000 doses of the morning after pill. So obviously that needs to be taken within 72 hours um, to the country. And they're also sending pills that help with a sort of longer term abortion. So that can be taken up to sort of nine weeks after um, after rape. Um, and you know, it's not, it's obviously not a solution to what's happening. Um, But they said that they are getting a lot of requests from hospitals in the East um, for medication to help them deal with the consequences of what's happening in this war. Um, It's, it's a pretty, pretty stark numbers for a really awful aspect of the fighting that we're seeing. Um, Just one thing I would add on that. Uh, I've mentioned before a very interesting piece by Robert Toombs that we commissioned, um, I think it would have been about a week ago. But if you just look at Robert Toombs on The Telegraph, then you'll be able to see it was his latest piece for us. And he talked about how the war has dispelled certain myths that have been built up over the decades um, post the Second World War. One of those, of course, was that the Red Army's horrific atrocities committed in the territories that it occupied after the war, most famously perhaps in Berlin, but frankly it was taking place all over the territory that the Soviets took back from um, Germany towards uh, the end of the war, particularly 1945. Um, and he, he talked about how this this the, the, the perception that this was, in some way, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this, but in some way that, that this was 
retribution for the um, atrocities committed against the Russian people and that in some way this was a unique psychological justification um, from the perspective of these soldiers that just as their territory had been stripped bare um, by by the Nazis that they were going to do the same. Um, Clearly, and this is the point that he makes in the article, this um, culture of atrocity, of rape and of the horrific heinous acts that we have seen um, in recent weeks speaks to the fact that this is not something that is actually just unique to a moment in history. This is something that is deeply ingrained, it it would appear, in the Russian army. This is an army that we know that has many conscripts. Conscripts are not as um, disciplined, I think it's fair to say. Um, But they're also, this is a brutalised army. Um, This is one where fear is used to control um, its soldiers, where beatings are not uncommon. Uh, It's not an army as we would understand it really here in the West. And unfortunately, one of the myths that we thought about World War II has now been shown to actually be a contemporary reality. Um, and um, or not a myth, I say, sorry, but, you know, the, the, one of the myths, inverted commas, that about the Second World War um, is actually now a contemporary reality for us. And I think that we are going to have to think more deeply about what this means for how we engage with Russia and think about Russia as a military force long term. Just quickly to add to that, it also speaks to the dehumanising language that we've heard within Russia about Ukrainians Um this sort of genocidal language, frankly, um, you know, that soldiers have been taught to see these people as not people. Um, and we've heard anecdotal, awful anecdotal stories about women who were being raped, being told that the soldiers wanted to make sure they'd never be able to have children again. And that is that is genocidal intent. That is trying to, you know, stop Ukrainian women and men from being able to reproduce, um, trying to sort of wipe out their nationality um it, it's really horrific and it, and it does speak to this sort of yeah the dehumanizing language that we've seen from from putin and the rest of his regime in russia really thanks francis and thanks Venetia. can we uh talk a little bit now about the well this news came out western governments want to deny russia any territorial gains from its invasion of ukraine officials have said in the clearest indication of the scale of the defeat they want to impose on moscow this is our question for the podcast today i think um who are these officials? What, what do they say? And how, how are the different members of the sort of Western alliance thinking about what defeat might look like or, or what victory looks like for, for Ukraine? So um, this is a significant moment, I think. Yesterday, uh, in, in the sort of known as the Mansion House speech, which is usually an opportunity for the Foreign Secretary to deliver a... Um, sort of a, a remarks about the current state of foreign affairs um, from from the government's perspective. And Liz Truss um, was essentially underlining the British position, which I think to the credit of the British government has been fairly consistent throughout this conflict, far more consistent than many of our allies in the West, um, that Putin cannot be seen to have prospered or succeeded in some, re- in some way from... Uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Now, um, there are different ways that one can interpret that. But this morning, um, there has been a a, a sort of clarification or or further remarks made by Western officials um, regarding what I suppose to them victory looks like. Um, And that is the same point that denying Russia any territorial gains from the invasion of, of Ukraine and withdrawing at a minimum, and that's a direct quote, to the positions that they held at the start of the invasion in February. So if that were the case, let's say the war did stop on those terms, and that would still leave Putin in control of Crimea and part of the Donbass, but it would deny him his publicly declared aim of, of, of liberating, in inverted commas, the, or, or quotation marks, should I say, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions and establishing a, a land bridge to Crimea. So it, it would, in, in terms of the stated aims of the invasion, be, be a failure if he were to achieve those. But nonetheless, I think that if you're looking at the, 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 the longer term strategy that Putin has adopted with regard to Ukraine, if he were able to keep the Donbass and Crimea, then, then that is in some ways still, as sort of, sort of some sort of international agreement 
agreement of which Ukraine is a part of that agreement, then that is actually um, quite a considerable success for, for Putin if one is considering the last sort of 10 year strategy. I mean, bear in mind that these were um, sovereign parts of um, the Ukrainian state that were seized through violence and um and, and, and annexation. So um, the West's position is, is is firming up on this, but is clearly not wanting to say at this stage that it will go all the way, that, 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 that Ukraine must achieve all of its, um, or the restoration of all of its territory. Um, but of course, this is ultimately, I think this has to be down to, um, to the Ukrainians themselves and Vladimir Zelensky. We've spoken in previous podcasts about um, uh, Zelensky's sort of moving goalposts, I think it's fair to say, on what peace looks like. Initially in the conflict, there were some overtures made, it would appear to the Russian negotiators that they might be willing to concede certain principles around membership of uh, joining of NATO um, and and possibly even some territorial questions. But as the war has gone on and as the Ukrainians have achieved more and more military successes, it would appear that that, that just as in the West, Zelensky's own opinion has hardened. And he actually said in a recent interview last week that he would not be willing to to ever concede Crimea as being part of, of Russia. Or, or, or Russian-controlled territory. So again, as I've said many times in this podcast, I know I sound like a broken record, um, this is at the moment a, a war that is sort of black and white. Both sides feel that they need to have achieved a tangible success. And that that definition of success is in direct contradiction with both sides at present. And until that changes, until there is a profound military collapse, either of the Russian army or the Ukrainian army, um, then uh, or, God forbid, a nuclear escalation, then, then things are not going to change on that, I don't believe, in the short term. And so, fortunately, we just have to, um, to watch and see how um, events develop over the, over the coming um, days, weeks and, and, and possibly months. Um, Dom Nichols, do you have anything to add to add to that? Yeah, so Francis there is talking about um, f- framing the sides as Ukraine and Russia, but I mean there, there is very real risk here, as we've mentioned before, that um, Putin might might try to use his May the ninth, the Victory Day speech, to to widen the war. And there's a very interesting thread from Mike Mazar, who's a senior political scientist at Rand, and I've got to hat tip Shashank Joshi, my friend and colleague at the at the Economist, for, for highlighting this, but. Um, um, so Mike Mazar has made the point, so if Putin expands the war, uh, or sorry, if, if he uses the word war and, and says this is now no longer a special military operation, it's, it's much bigger than that for the reasons we discussed yesterday, and said it is now a war, and therefore he's able to, to, to mobilise nationally and turn the economy to to the war. What happens if he also expands that and says that, says to the Russian people, this you are now in a war with NATO, so it takes it bigger than Ukraine, says you're you're in a war with NATO. So NATO and the West do not want to be dragged any further into this than they, are, than they are currently, but it might not be in their gift. And if, for example, there are covert operations against um, NATO training areas or these convoys or some of the things, some of the training going on in Salisbury Plain, for example, training uh, Ukrainians in, in the vehicles and, and missiles that, uh, that are being donated, um, what, what, do the, what, do, what does the West, what does the US and, and NATO do then? And Mike Mazar, I'll just read this quote from Mike Mazar says, quote, the US judgment so far has been that it doesn't possess vital interests sufficient for direct involvement in war. A seemingly out of control, hyper-nationalist Russian going for broke would cause many to question that assumption, unquote. So this discussion about the sides and how big this thing is might not be in our gift. And this is very a very dangerous time um, leading up to the May, to May the 9th and what happens thereafter. So Francis is absolutely correct in, in what he's saying, but it, it may no longer it may no longer be in our gift to say how much involvement we, we wish to have or otherwise. It could, uh, it could be coming to us. I just have one other comment on the, the, this sort of, I suppose, contest um, between the different views of what victory looks like from both the Ukrainian and Russian perspective. We were talking about Curzon earlier on and... Uh, and the, the sort of the, the remarks being made there from the puppet government about this being part of Russian territory, etc. Um, of course, there are risks inherent in this. 
that if the Russian state on May the 9th or in the coming days really says that that, 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 that the, their intent is that these territories remain, uh, that they start trading with the ruble and, and essentially become formally part of, um, of, of Russia's territory, then um, if... As the war is currently going, the war continues to decline from the perspective of the Russians and they are forced to concede these territories if Kurzon falls um, to, to the Ukrainians or, um, in, 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 in the long term, then that is a huge reputational um, issue for the Russian government and for Vladimir Putin in particular. Because how on earth can you sell to your people and to your generals, etc., that this has been a, a success if you lose territories that you are claiming have been liberated from Nazis and um, will remain and be trading in, in the ruble? Um, so there are risks here for, for the Russians. And I imagine that it is one that, that, that the Ukrainians and, and the West will be very sensitive to um, and they will adapt their strategies accordingly. Thanks, Francis. Um, another story I think we should talk about, because it's quite extraordinary, is uh, it was in uh, today's Telegraph um, about a Gazprom chief who's gone to Ukraine and has taken up arms against Russia. Uh, Venetia, can you tell us about this? What's, what's the story here? Yes, his name is Igor Volobyev, and he is, as you said, a former Gazprom executive. He was the vice president there. Um, and he actually fled Russia about a week after the war, saying that he basically just couldn't stand it anymore. His quote is is extraordinary. I couldn't stay with those people, shake their hands, watch the war on my phone as if this were a horrible film and pretend I didn't care. Um, He's now actually joined the Ukrainian Territorial Defence Forces, um, which is, yeah, it's just absolutely amazing. And we've obviously heard quite a few stories about Russians, you know, disagreeing with the war and people who are long-time parts of the establishment speaking out against Putin and the rest of the government. But um, this is this is a pretty senior defection. And he also sort of speaks about um, the sort of unexpected death of another Gazprom executive who reportedly killed his wife and child before committing suicide himself and saying that he, all, he found it all very suspicious. Um, so, yeah, he's now living in Ukraine and fighting alongside the Ukrainians against the Russians. Gosh. And uh, Francis, I know you want to talk about this. There's been quite an important vote in the Bundestag uh, today. What happened? Yes, well, um, Germany has, of course, been uh, one of the central features of this podcast ever since it began because they have been essentially trying to, I think, manoeuvre a middle path um, between both sides on this, whilst vocally they've obviously been highly, highly critical of, of, of Putin and have been providing considerable support in, in, in terms of uh, money and, and various other things. I think I think few can deny that initially when this conflict began, their support um, was was fairly insubstantial compared to the support offered by Britain and, and, and other um, nations in Europe. Um, but there, that, there has been, as we've spoken about before, a profound shift now where Germany has, and, and the Chancellor there, Olaf Scholz, has been forced to, um, to concede that, that they will be now sending um, heavy weapons to Ukraine. And we've now had the Bundestag vote. And it's just interesting because, as I say, this is meant to be a very divided Germany um, on this point, um, or at least a very a divided elite. But just to speak to the the, the 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 profound way in which the ground has now shifted, 586 MPs voted yes in favour of providing military um, he- heavy weapons support, and only 100 MPs voted no. So this is a resounding um, uh, victory for the the sort of escalationary, I think, uh, cause within within Germany within Germany in the sense of of one wanting to get deeper involved in assisting the Ukrainian forces. And clearly there is a, 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 a mounting pressure on Olaf Scholz to, to do more. And uh, as I say, we've spoken about it many times on this podcast, that I think that just um, it was a very naive view from the German uh, state to think that it would be possible to manoeuvre this middle path um, long term, because ultimately this is becoming a deeper black and white issue. Um, and, and, until, and, and one where it's not really possible to, um, when one is so close to, to Ukraine, to had to try and play both um, to play both sides, um, but that said, of course, and I think it's just worth underlining this point: uh, Russia, um, Germany is still paying considerable amounts of, of millions of, of euros every day um, to uh, to Russia in the forms of energy, um, and uh, until that 
really stops, um, I think that this this war um, will um, con- continue. And I think that that is really the, the, the new battleground that we've spoken about um, several times now um, is, is on this energy question and the speed in which the West can wean itself off, off the addiction that it has to, to Russian oil and gas. Thanks, Francis. Um, Dominic Nichols, I know there's a few more things, a few more updates from Ukraine and, and from NATO that you want to mention. Yeah, just a couple of quick roundups. I'm sorry if we're, it's a bit scattergun, but this is such a fast-moving um, event in history that we just need to need to lily pad across all these things. So, uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres is in. He arrived in in Ukraine today. He's been in Moscow. He was in Moscow yesterday. He met the president. Uh, there was some criticism that he went first to Moscow and secondly to um, to Ukraine. Uh, criticism from President Zelensky. Uh, I'm willing to give him a pass on that as long as what he does in Ukraine is worthy of his of his office. So let's have a look what he's what he's done today. He's arrived arrived in Kiev and he's gone to Bucha, the scene of the so just northwest of the capital, Kiev, the scene of of um, those horrendous uh, the, the atrocities committed by Russian forces. So Antonio Guterres has said that the, the war. Um, is, is, quote, an absurdity, a good start. And then he goes on to say, uh, this is a quote, I fully support the ICC, that's the International Criminal Court, the investigation into these, these alleged um, humanitarian abuses. I fully support the ICC, and I appeal to the Russian Federation to accept and to cooperate with the ICC. But when we talk about war crimes, we cannot forget that the worst of crimes is war itself. Well, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not particularly blown away by that, is, is the point. Yeah. I don't think that... Yeah. Hopefully these are just opening comments. Um, not especially strong in the condemnation from the UN Secretary-General, I would venture. Um, so let's see later on today, as more news comes out of his visit to, to Ukraine and those scenes of those atrocities, let's see if the, if the language hardens up there at all. Um, but a- appealing to Russia to accept and cooperate with the ICC is, um, well, it's just laughable, I think. Um, secondly, worth noting, uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has been speaking today as well. He said that NATO's support for Ukraine will last for years. He said there's an absolute possibility that this war could drag on for years. He's also talking about trying to transition Ukraine away from the, that, the from sort of equipment and doctrine and, and uh, methodologies of the old uh, Warsaw Pact Soviet Union years and to move them on to uh, more sort of Western equipment and western doctrine uh, I, I don't I, I mean it'll be a long i think it's a long way away from from then saying and they'll be ready for nato membership but just just the the having the equipment so that they can operate with the same natures of equipment i'm, I'm struggling not to use the word interoperability though, though it's a, a clunky term but if ukraine is able to use western op- uh, western equipment then it makes it easier to support them and to and to supply the natures of ammunition and the, and the spare, spare parts and what have you so there's a move from nato uh jens stoltenberg give me a clear signal that, he, that he's not intending to go anywhere soon and, and he personally has been extended in post by a year so his leadership is going to last throughout the next few months of this thing um he's saying that nato is going to give full support to to ukraine and try and move them onto a, a Western, a more Western um, sort of equipped model. And just finally, worth noting how diplomacy works. Many, many levers, many, many um, things to look at. So I would just argue, uh, uh, urge you to have a look at, um, at the Twitter site, Navy Lookout. It's a British-run site. I think former Royal Navy um, people running that site. There's some images on there uh, of Faz Lane. So Faz Lane is Britain's nuclear submarine base in Scotland, just outside Glasgow. And at the moment, you've got three... Well, I mean, it, it is the home of the British British nuclear submarine fleet. That's, that's as in the nuclear, nuclear-armed as well as nuclear-powered uh, fleet. Um, so you've got British submarines there. You've also got a US Virginia-class uh, sub and a French Rubis-class boat there as well. Uh, quite interesting. And secondly, uh, from April the 19th, so a few days ago, HMS Audacious, which is um, a British hunter-killer, nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed, but a nuclear-powered hunter-killer submarine, was seen at the Gibraltar naval base loading TLAMs. So TLAMs are Tomahawk land attack missiles. These are cruise missiles, 1,000-mile range, uh, very capable weapons, been used extensively in recent conflicts. So there, uh, um, HMS Audacious was, uh, was in Gibraltar alongside the USS Georgia, an American Ohio-class uh, boat. So, you know, in, interesting, as Putin's talking about nuclear stuff and he likes to rattle that cage, just an interesting response there, I think, from the West, just not saying anything, no announcements, uh, relying on the good people in uh, social media and open source intelligence to, um, to highlight these things, but just saying, 
we 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 also can can um, just dust off the old um, the old ledgers, make sure everyone knows uh, you know what what they're doing and what have you. So so something to have a look at there. Navy Lookout was the site I'd uh, I recommend. If I could just pick up on one thing that Don was talking about there in relation to the UN. Um, it's been, I think, in the background of this entire conflict, this idea that we may be entering a, a sort of new Cold War with different blocks forming between sort of democratic states and those that are autocratic. Part of the thinking on that, of course, has been shaped by the UN votes, where we've seen considerable high numbers of abstentions in condemning the uh, war in Ukraine and in some cases actually supporting Russia. And I, I've been very interested in this because I think it's it's really important in terms of the long-term picture um, about what, you know exactly why these countries have, have abstained, why when you see such an obvious flouting of international law, you are not willing to condemn those actions. And in some, as I say, in some um, examples actually to support them. And um, I'll just point listeners to some interesting analysis in both The Economist and The New York Times um, this week regarding this this tacit support for, for the Russians in the UN. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail because it almost warrants you know an entire segment, but um, essentially what they're saying is that, it, the, that the this is about interests in many of these cases and not values or ideology. So in the instance of many of the African states and some of the Asian states that have voted the way they have, obviously India and Pakistan um, most significantly um, in, in terms of the, uh, the latter, um, that this is actually, it's not as if they are committed to autocratic values as such. And this is somehow a, a redrawing of the map that we thought that we knew. Rather, it is about interest. It's about um, the money that they are supporting, they're receiving from from China and Russia's in, in, in terms of um, um, trade. It's also about weapons exchange and, and of course, energy. Um, they are reluctant, however, to, to really to choose between sort of the, the Western style democracies and the more sort of autocratic ones. Um, and, but of course they may have to long term. Um, but as I say, I just thought it's, 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 it's worth considering this. They are not lost causes yet. And I've seen some commentary that sort of makes it sound like, oh, we've lost them to, to China and Russia, you know, because of this, that and the other. Well, actually, no, if you really read into this, this is, as I say, about their own domestic interests, um, but they are not uh, un, unwinnable long term. And I just think that that's something that Western uh, leaders should be sensitive to as they think about this in terms of a long term geopolitical context because um it's 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 highly relevant i think to the um picture as we'll see emerging internationally over the coming years and decades thank you francis i think there's a final story we need to talk about it's it, we published uh today on the telegraph website so do go there and read it um Venetia, talk us through why russia is employing dolphins to protect its ships Dolphins. Yes, you heard that right, listeners. Dolphins. The newest front in this war involves underwater mammals. Um, This is not a joke. Russia has posted Navy-trained dolphins to its port in Sebastopol in Crimea. It's deployed them to the entrance of the port um, to protect from undersea sabotage, to protect its Black Sea fleet that's in the port from undersea sabotage. This happened at the beginning of the war in February. We've seen satellite pictures to confirm that these dolphin sort of holding pens were moved there back then. Um, And this analysis comes from the US Naval Institute. So it is legit. Russia actually has form for using uh, military trained dolphins. They've got very good sonar, obviously, very good for detecting mines, um, divers, things like that. Um, And it builds on a program that's actually been long running since during the Cold War. Um, Ukraine, back when it was a Soviet nation, had a program to use dolphins um, as part of its Navy defense um, (laughs) systems. And uh, that was sort of snowballed for a while. But Russia has restarted it since taking Crimea. Um, And those dolphins are now back on patrol. So watch out. I'm sure Francis and Dom have some thoughts on this. But can I quickly just ask, so how does it work exactly? The dolphins detect mines or saboteurs or whatever using their sonar and then they are trained to to sort of flag that to their handlers is it is it something like that yeah i don't i don't know the exact details of how it works but the way russia talks about it, it they they make it sound like they have been able to add some kind of technology to the dolphins where what they sense can be relayed back to a russian control center um 
I was reading a report about something similar having been done to a beluga whale that was also wearing some kind of harness and was spotted um, interfering with ships, was believed to be, you know, being used by the Russians to to spy on other ships in the waters. Um, it's, it's pretty extraordinary stuff. I don't know the exact details of how it works. I say maybe Dom knows more details, but um, that's, that's as much as I know. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but no, I don't, I don't know about dolphins. Uh, I mean, compared to some of the people I used to work with, I'll take a dolphin any day. I mean, we, we'll look into this. This is a fascinating story. Um, we will try and look into the tech. I mean, the, the military use of animals um, goes back, goes back you know, eons. Um, and certainly I remember when, when I was serving, we did used to get regular, have regular interaction with PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, um, who would say there was, no, there was no place for animals in war and they, they, don't, they don't get a vote. And, and these, are all, these are all correct. However, animals have amazing senses in many areas, um, far, far, far beyond what humans have. And, the, and this example, is, the dolphins, is just, is just one example. But we used, we used dogs extensively um, in Afghanistan um, for uh, sniffing out uh, bombs and, and other chemicals and all, and all the rest of it. I mean, they are, it, it, the use of animals is, is controversial. Um, I don't mean to make light of it. And, and it is worth, worth a, a deep dive in its own, own right. No pun intended, deep dive. But um, it is if it's happening, then then yeah, we should we should we owe the owe the listeners a an answer on that. So I'll I'll, I'll have a look um, and uh, yeah, see if we can see if we can work out quite what the dolphins are doing. Thanks, Dom. Oh, Francis, sorry. It reminded me of a the story from during the I believe it's the Cold War where the the Russians tried to train cats or was it the British? I need to look this up, but anyway, I'd, I'd recommend people to, to to look this up for the quick Google. Um, uh, tried to train cats to spy on people um, and essentially uh, they did lots of experiments and things like that um, in trying to train cats and anyone who's been a cat owner will know that the challenge inherent in that and unfortunately one of the said cats who was meant to be spying on uh, on people with this recording equipment got run over um, so um, I think uh, sometimes with this sort of innovative technology involving animals it is not um, not always as successful as, as perhaps one, one might hope although that said I would just in support of this idea of, of animals actually serving heroically in war. People will be familiar with, of course, the Dickens Medal being a military awards to those who fight in, in wars um, uh, very popular in, in, in Britain and there's a wonderful um, Wikipedia page where you can read all about these marvellous animals and the heroics that they performed. Um, the ones that strike me the most as perhaps being most the most amazing are, are pigeons. Pigeons in the Second World War were absolutely vital for communicating um, um, messages from the front so uh, I remember reading um, about um, Arnhem, Battle of Arnhem when of course this is where we dropped a lot of soldiers um, across in, uh, in into the Netherlands um, from the, as I say, from the air, and uh, a lot of people actually, a lot of these soldiers had pigeons attached to them, and so the pigeons would would. The idea was that the pigeons, when once the soldier had landed, they would release the pigeon. This would then fly across back to Britain and would report that so and so detachment has landed, etc. Just an amazing um, feat, and 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 in some instances, the first reports of certain military successes, I believe, on D Day arrived by pigeon and not by radio. Um, so as I say, it's uh, it's it's easy to laugh at this stuff, but actually. Um, in the history of war, um, it, it really matters. And in China, I believe they still have a um, a unit that, that that have have pigeons for serving in war. So there you go. Well, thank you, Francis, and thank you, Dom, and thank you, Vinicia. Vinicia's had to go back to to the foreign desk. But Francis and Dom, can we get your final thoughts, please? Final thought for me. Um, back on the UN. Sorry, be- beating that drum. I'd be very interested to see what Secretary General Antonio Guterres um, says after his visit um, to Ukraine. If there's any anyone from the UN listening, any any spokespeople, um, be very very interested to to hear your thoughts, um, DM message, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, just about if this is if this is the UN's moment. But um, yeah, keep an eye on on uh, Mr. Guterres and see what he what he says after his visit. Um, just from me, I would just point people towards some of the remarks made by Putin yesterday, where he talked about this idea of, of the escalation of, of military support in terms of heavy weaponry being provided by Germany and Britain and others as uh, essentially an unacceptable threat. And that if they become strategic in nature, then their response will be lightning fast. Um, and that there was a real threat of, of World War Three. And of course, this isn't anything new. Um, but at the same time, whenever you have a leader who has their finger on 
the button, as it were. I think we should take this stuff seriously and, and shouldn't um, just ignore it. I do think that uh, Putin and his generals and indeed one could argue the entire Russian state are operating in a different frame of mind in this war. We've spoken about it many, many times. The mentality is is one deeply rooted in paranoia um, and, um, and of course, misinformation. And I do think that there are there's considerable evidence now that, that Putin does think that he is essentially at war with NATO. One could argue that perhaps he is in a sense. Um, and as a consequence, this is now uh, a, a, not just a sort of annexation conflict, a special operation to use his term, but is now something far deeper where his very survival as leader could be at stake. Um, and as a consequence of that, I think that we should you know, and as I'm sure Western intelligence agencies and the, and the military are, should take this stuff seriously and, and, and should think about um, just the risks involved in doing certain things. I don't think we've, um, I think we're right to be doing what we're doing, but I think it's just important that, you know, we're, we're reporting on what's happening every day. And I think that whenever a world leader says um, that there's a, a, a threat of World War Three and nuclear escalation, we should comment on that. Yesterday, I spoke with Sovjetoslav Hrenchuk. He's a journalist and a news anchor in Ukraine. He talks to me about his daily life and what doing journalism feels like on the ground, reporting on a war in his own country. I hope you enjoy this interview. Well, thank you very much, Sivyatoslav, for your time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your life before the war started? I was an anchorman on uh, morning TV news. Normally, I just woke up every morning at about 4 a.m., worked till noon, uh, and uh, then I had time to be with my family. I don't know, we like to travel, to explore something new. Uh, my daughter is now four years old, so my life before the war, I can describe like this, like a peaceful, interesting family life, just just a normal life. You you said that you were a morning anchor. Did you see the war coming? It wasn't a surprise that Russia will start something since last December what we, when uh, we got some information from Western intelligence. But uh, I must say that I was sure that they will attack on the eastern part of Ukraine. I was sure that uh, they will... Uh, take some chance to take more territories of Donetsk uh, region, of Lugansk region, but I was sure they wouldn't attack uh, Kiev or Lviv or uh, cities which are far away from the front line. It was my big mistake, I must say now, but I believed that it would, wouldn't be like that. Where were you when the conflict started and what did you do? 24th of February, it wasn't my uh, working day like today, <laughs> but uh, we woke up at about five o'clock in the morning. We heard uh, something like explosion and also the phone was uh, vibrating from a I think, pile of message. I immediately opened newsfeed. Also, I read the post in uh, Facebook of my colleague Marichka Padelko, who was uh, actually working this morning. And uh, then we understood everything. Uh, fortunately, the, the bags were ready because even I didn't believe they would attack Kiev. We had this bag to have a trip at any moment. The uh, possibility of Russian attack was predicted. So we, anyway, we prepared. So we woke up our daughter and about an hour and in about an hour, we were at the railway station. My girls took a train to the western Ukraine, where we have family, to a safer place. And that was the last time uh, for now I saw them. And after, after that, I just came back home, took a shower, trying to understand what is going on, what I should do now. And then I just went to an office. It was day one. Uh, tanks <laughs> moving to Kiev, helicopter flights near Kiev, some missile explosions uh, near our office, some madness. But I uh, saw my colleagues in the office. Uh, they came because they need to work. We, they, they know there's going to be a lot of work. And I was on my place and it uh, became, uh, in some way, uh, I became more calm after that. 
So what what would you say has been the experience of Ukrainian journalists in the war? I mean, you mentioned the opening and going to your office and hearing the missile strikes and knowing that tanks are rolling over the borders. Um, how is that? Has that changed much since you've started? What's the new routine for you? On day one, the two first days, uh, it was a shock for everybody. There was lack of understanding what should we do, what is going on, how this is not a nightmare, not some war movie. But, uh, you know, when you have a lot of work to do, you don't have time to rewind it in your head, to think about it more and more. In some way, when you have a lot of work, it's much more easily personally for me sure there was a lot of stressful programs in the first days there were a lot of air alerts when we had to take the break in our air and go to the shelter from the studio there were some explosions near our studio when even the floor was shaking we had this experience but for me i think i think more stressful it's not my personal problems but uh, to have to get some breaking news that uh, you are not ready to work with uh, because you never had uh, this situation before when you get the news about some murders of innocent people about uh, dead kids about cruelty of soldiers that is the hardest part it's even harder than uh, to hear an explosion near your office because when you are in shelter uh, explosion is uh, you feel in some way safe, but you, when you read uh, that, I, I know that a lot of uh, Russian tanks are coming to Kiev and the, the Russian soldiers, what are they doing with the innocent people? It's uh, it's different reality. So, so also I uh, must say that uh, our reporters are all our main heroes. They work in most dangerous points of map while enemies were shooting around they were doing all air alerts in hospitals in the buildings that was ruined by bombs so every day they bring some war stories from front line which i i must say i'm shocked with their brave with their journalist skills and it's a very big honor for me to work with them and for now, for now, I don't know, for a few days uh, ago, we had our studio first time uh, outside uh, since the start of full-scale war. We visited Bucha and made a live program from there. Uh, we talked with the people there, saw some ruined buildings and places where the bodies of hundreds of civilians were buried. And I can't describe all all of the emotions that trip gave me uh, this is experience i would recommend to every person who is still not sure who is who and what is going on in the ukrainian world just exploring this you can understand ukrainian people now as a ukrainian journalist you've been reporting for you primarily for ukrainians um can i ask is there anything you think that non-ukrainians and particularly the non-Ukrainian press and journalists uh, don't necessarily understand about the conflict or about Ukraine. Are there any sort of myths you'd want to you'd want to correct for us? For me, uh, very important uh, for people to understand that all this war, all this situation, is actually not about some current politics. It's not about uh, that. It's about uh, the existence of our country. Just uh, because Putin tries to convince everybody in the world that he would not attack if we would accept the demands about NATO, if we would forget about Crimea or something else. So uh, it's just a problem of uh, current time. But it's not true. They would attack us anyway. They just will invent some other reasons because uh, they think that uh, they have a right to control all these territories, Donbass, Odessa, the Ukrainian South, even Kiev. They still didn't accept everything that happened in 1991. Why did they make uh, Abkhazian war, Transnistria, Georgian war? It's uh, all, all the same. It's all to have a chance to rebuild a big Russia with all this land in some future. So it's, uh, you just listen to Russian officials. They are telling that Ukrainians are not the nation. This is the level of diplomacy in 21st century. Not saying that some decision of our government are bad, 
some reforms, some documents. No, they just say, your nation does not exist. What, what is that? They are telling us that our territories are a gift of Russia, the, the, the solution of Soviet Union is a tragedy and so on and so forth. So uh, we know that they need us to be a Russian-controlled state like Belarus or another option just to destroy uh, Ukraine as the country. Nothing else they would not accept unless we will defeat them. So all the negotiations Putin offers is just a strategic move. He needs our territories. He, he just washed minds of Russian people for 20 years, telling them that we are enemies. We are Nazis, uh, we need to be destroyed, our languages and culture are fake, we are the same nation that Russians, and now we had 80 or I think 90% of population of Russia who think that it's acceptable to kill people in other countries. So uh, I, what I want to say to all the world, it's not about politics, negotiations, safety guarantees or something like that, it's about uh, our escape from vanishing, our escape from uh, back to the USSR, like one of your famous thinkers think one day. Since the conflict started, you've joined a um, new TV station, United News, which has been created to, as I understand it, created specially to cover this conflict. Can you tell us about United News? Uh, who are you? Uh, what is the venture? Where did it come from? And what did you, what do you do? United News is the project of, I think, six main uh, Ukrainian channels. When uh, these channels, I must admit, uh, we were rivals before the war. We were <laughs> fighting for audience, for the ratings. But when the full-scale war started, uh, the channels perfectly showed how all our society working right now. We forgot about all this uh, uh, rivalry about uh, competitions. We understood them in this situation. We just mu must provide information for 24 hours because we. One of the main reasons we must fight against the Russian propaganda, which them creates uh, in a very very big number. They had a lot of media. They had a lot of channels in Twitter, Telegram, they have a lot of bots, so we must uh, uh, provide uh, official and uh, true information uh, to uh, our people read this, not uh, all this stuff. So uh, everyone should, uh, uh, also we, all the channels understood that uh, they have to change the program network because when the bombs are exploding, the audience doesn't need any I know, morning shows, movies, entertainment, all this stuff. Uh, everybody just needs news, interviews and analytics about what is going on on the front line. So main channels start to work together. Every channel has its own hours of broadcasting. For example, our channel from midnight to 6 o'clock in the morning, the next channel from 6 o'clock to 12 in the noon, and next day we uh, change uh, the time slot. Next day we will work uh, in the noon. The next day we will work in the uh, evening. Uh, um, every, every channel cover its hours with uh, its own resources, with its own studios, journalists, uh, uh, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And if people from outside Ukraine want to find United News, how can they do that? I think it's always available in YouTube. Uh, I, I just uh, can't remember directly what is the link, but I think it's uh, easier to find it in Facebook, the page of United News, and there's a... Uh, link to first of all our YouTube feed which is uh, uh, in some part translated to English as I know to people all over the world can uh, take some uh, information from there and also I know that we were uh, it's more uh, technological uh, aspects I don't know it uh, too, too good but uh, I know we opened the satellite signal for all over the world. And you, you can find in Facebook all these numbers to get our satellite sig signal free uh, in any uh, point of the world. So it's, uh, it's uh, absolutely uh, easy to find a United uh, News uh, signal all over the world if you will uh, just uh, Google for a few minutes to do it. 
We're on day 63 of the conflict. What does your daily life look like now? Oh, day 63, it sounds so, <laughs> so scary. <laughs> uh, now, now when Russians are out of Kyiv region, it's uh, much more calm, you must understand. A few weeks ago, when missiles and bombs were exploded every day, everywhere, and there was some street shooting, uh, it was much worse. We have to stay uh, for a few days in our office because it wasn't safe enough to leave. We were sleeping in the shelter under our channel. I, I still have some sleeping bag there for <laughs> if the situation will be the same. At the time, we didn't know how it would be, how long it uh, took. Uh, everything could happen. Russian troops could, could be in the parliament on, in the office of president in a few hours. You must understand that in in first days, it, everything was possible. But anyway, we did our job. A lot of my colleagues lived in the office for months, I think since the day one. Some of them lived in town, little towns or villages which are under occupation. And even when they run away from the Russian troops. So next day, they were ready to do their job. They were also lived in our office. Uh, now we still have some curfews in our cities from, uh, I think, uh, 11 o'clock p.m. till the 5 a.m. So we still have some air alerts. The missiles are hitting some of our objects, but it's much, much more easier. And life in Kiev is more similar to this life we have before February. Uh, but this is in Kyiv. You must understand that uh, Kyiv is now in better situation in eastern cities uh, like Kharkiv or Mykolaiv or especially Mariupol. Uh, the hell is right now. Their life is much worse. So my life is uh, now... Uh, it's it's more look like before the war, but uh, anyway, I ju I have much more work, and uh, sometimes before uh, because of curfew, I must spend nights and mornings in our office because when I my air uh, finishes at uh, eleven o'clock, I can't go back home. I must stay at office and like that. Sivjatoslav, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you would you, that you want to say? I uh, have to thank uh, all the Western world for support, everyone who will hear this. We appreciate any help to our country, to our army, to our refugees. Uh, we will remember this for years and years. You know, uh, Russians always said that we and Ukrainians are brother nations. You know, this war show uh, which nations are, if not brother, but uh, very close friends to us and uh, we will remember it for years and second thing uh, it's very important uh, for world to keep russia under the pressure to show them that uh, you just can't wake up one day and start to kill people in a neighboring european country in 21st century so uh, my ask uh, my asks are uh, to world uh, to keep pushing on them, not buying their goods, not having business with them, to show that they crossed the line, just crossed the line. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Alice Hearing. <laughs>